Welcome to the Out of the Deep End Podcast. This is your host, Dr. J.C. Burnham. On today's show, we're going to take a look at the tragic suicide of Miss USA, Chesley Chris, some of the factors that might have contributed to her suicide, and what therapists are doing to help people with suicidal thoughts. Give me just a few minutes of your day. Together, we'll make a difference. This is not an easy topic to discuss. Suicide never is, but it is a very important topic that we discuss because suicide affects many more people than we realize. And everybody at some point in their life faces some kind of a tragedy or some kind of very dark point to where they consider suicide. Now, we're not saying that they're actually going to follow through with it, but it's actually quite normal for us to, to ask ourselves, well, why am I here? Who loves me? I can't see any way out of this. Maybe it would be better if I weren't here. So those are very normal reactions that we experience. So Chesley Christ, she makes the headlines because of who she is. First of all, being Miss USA, being a black Miss USA in a landmark year where um, all of the major uh, pageant winners were African um, descent of some kind. And so she immediately jumps into the headlines. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about who was she and what might we learn from suicide and what how might we approach suicide if it is something that we are ever faced with. So we know that she jumped from the Orion, Orion condo building in Manhattan. And she was a civil rights attorney. She was a fashion blogger. And she was an Emmy Award-nominated entertainment news correspondent. And she won the title of Miss USA in 2019. And she did it by breaking some some barriers, not just because of being a minority, but because of her approach also to gender issues. For example, some of her responses, she says, people didn't think, oh, that's enough. It's still possible for us to be successful on our own merit. And it doesn't matter if you look like the last winner, if you look like the last three, if you're the best, you are the best and you can win. And so she recalls when a judge at, a, at another competition suggested that she wear a skirt instead of the pants that she was wearing because he said judges prefer skirts. And she looked at him and she said, glass ceilings can be broken wearing either a skirt or pants. So she she was known for not being afraid to stand up and maybe even do those things that other people talk about we should do. She was willing to do it on a very big stage. But there's an article that is was written in Allure of March last year, where she wrote this article and she reflects upon turning 30. And we don't know why she committed suicide. Maybe that'll come out later. But we can see that there may be some things in this article that she talked about that might indicate that she was already struggling mentally. And so, for example, she says, each time I say I'm turning 30, I cringe a little. Sometimes I can successfully mask this uncomfortable response with excitement. Other times, my enthusiasm feels hollow, like bad acting. 
Society has never been kind to those growing old, especially women. A grinning, crinkly-eyed glance at my achievements thus far makes me giddy about laying the groundwork for more, but turning 30 feels like a cold reminder that I am running out of time to matter in society's eyes, and it's infuriating. And so... 30 is a big landmark year. Anybody who turns turns 30 realizes, okay, I am now officially the adult. Like throughout your 20s, you're an adult, but you can still pretend to be a young adult. But when you turn 30, it's that's a pretty big landmark. And she does have a point that we our society is not nice to the aging. And I think society is even harder on women than it is for men. If I think about, you know, some of the hallmark male actors, for example, as they get older, they seem to become more distinguished. Gray hair kind of adds to that, 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 what they are presenting. But women seem to have it harder. Um, and maybe, maybe it's societal. Maybe it's feelings that we put upon ourselves. But it's obvious here that she was already like struggling with the fact that I have accomplished all this and yet I, something about me is changing and there's nothing that I can do about that. So she left, she left a suicide note and she left everything um, for her mother. But in the note, she doesn't give us a reason as to why she was committing suicide, which is very difficult for people. Um, you'll hear people say that that suicide is very selfish, right? And it really hurts the people that you leave behind. And I'm not going to say that that isn't true because it certainly seems selfish and it certainly does affect everyone that is left behind because we, we are left asking, well, what did I miss? Was it my fault? Could I have done something to help? But I want to change our thinking a little bit that saying that a person that is committing suicide, they really don't see any other option. And so we might call it selfishness or we might call it for them the answer that they've been looking for. And we'll talk about that here in a minute because it's kind of a shift in the way that we think. I'm going to break down what the recent research has Told, told us about suicidal people and then looking at some of the, the modern current therapy that is actually working really well. But before I do that, it's just a few stats. Suicide right now is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. 47,000 people a year commit suicide. That's 13.4 suicides per 100,000 individuals. That puts it into perspective for me, because when I think of, of the size of a city, like I grew up um, or I worked for many years in a, a, a suburb of Los Angeles in uh, Southern California, um, quite a long ways from um, L.A., but still a suburb. And I think there are 150 to 200,000 individuals in that, in that small city. And to think that that would be 26 individuals per year committing suicide in my town, to me, that's mind-blowing. And we know that men die by suicide three and a half times more often than women. Women contemplate it more, 
but men are more willing to actually follow through. And a lot of that has to do with men's inability to uh, reach out and ask for help. Women tend to surround themselves by people who will listen. And so men will follow through with the act much more. On average, in America, there are 132 suicides per day, which is just striking, absolutely phenomenal. But it might surprise you to learn that the U.S. is not even in the top 10 in the world. The top three spots goes to African countries. And um, we won't name all of the countries, but let's just say the top, um, Lesotho has 72 deaths per 100,000. That's amazing. Staggering. The fourth might surprise you, South Korea, 28 deaths per 100,000. And it's thought that this is mostly happening with the elderly because there's a shift in South Korea right now where it's becoming more westernized and children are not taking care of their elderly parents and grandparents. And so there's a very dramatic sense of abandonment by the older generation. And um, if we understand the Korean culture and this concept of face, and they feel embarrassed and they feel rejected by their children and by their society. So many elderly in South Korea are committing suicide as a way of coping. Russia is number nine. And I've had a little bit of experience with the Russian culture. And I can tell you that I always thought that the Russian Russians dealt with depression um, in a, a healthier way because it's actually a lot more accepted in their culture than it is in America. They have a word, Tuska, which to us, the closest word I can think of, which we don't even really use anymore, is Inui, which is just kind of this... If you think of Winnie in the Pooh and Eeyore, he's always depressed. Everything is just blue. That is Tuska. And that's actually a, a normal state for a Russian. Um, you think about winter is harsh, winter is long. So you kind of go through these moods. And it's expected and it's, it, it's accepted a little bit more than it is here in the United States. But still, number nine. So 25 people in Russia per 100,000 commit suicide right now. So if I think about suicide in America and what is contributing to suicide, we have the American dream in America, right here in America where I'm going to make money, I'm going to own a home, I'm going to have a nice car. But it seems like we're getting to the point to where we kind of have what we need to survive and it's still never enough. We're constantly being bombarded by advertisements telling you, you are not good enough. You have a problem? Take this pill. You want this? Then buy this program, and we will help you to get it. But what do we need as humans to actually be happy and healthy? It's a lot less than what society is telling us. It's real interesting. When we think about wealth, what is wealth? Well, it can be identified as material prosperity, and it's actually a relatively new concept in society. Yes, there have always been wealthy individuals, kings and queens and landowners throughout time, 
But this idea that everybody can accumulate wealth and individual wealth, that's actually only a couple hundred years old. That's that's very much um, an American westernized ideal. And I shouldn't say Americanized because it's not just America. It was globally with the British Empire spreading these ideologies um, throughout the world. But this idea of gaining, amassing wealth is still fairly new. So wealth is a word that comes from a Germanic word that means whole. And whole is the Germanic word for health. So there's a a direct relationship between being wealthy and being healthy. But we have twisted the word. So health is no longer the root, which means if you're healthy, you are whole. We say that you are wealthy. But wealthy is not the same as being healthy, does it? Wealth does not guarantee health nor does wealth guarantee mental health. And there are so many good opportunities of looking at this phenomenon in our culture where people suddenly become wealthy. And it's interesting for us to to say, well, since they are now wealthy, are they going to be healthy? Are they going to be happier? With Chesley Christ, she she achieved so much beautiful intelligent famous and yet for some reason it wasn't enough so we can say she was wealthy but was she actually healthy and that's what i'm hoping in in the near future that we actually get some answers so we understand what was she actually going through because we know that the, the wealth was not going to make it better. As a matter of fact, the fame probably made it worse. There was an interesting research that was done back in 1978. A trio of researchers at Northwestern University and the, and the University of Massachusetts, they wanted to answer this question, and they asked two very different groups. It is a very classic question that we, that we ask. If I won the lotto... Would I be happy? And so they had two groups. They had the recent winners of the Illinois State Lottery, and those individuals had won prizes that ranged from $50,000 all the way up to a million dollars. And then in the second group, they had victims of catastrophic accidents who were now left, because of that accident, paraplegic or quadriplegic. So two interesting, very diverse groups to look at. Lottery winners versus people who no longer have the use of their limbs. So they interviewed these individuals, and they were asked, among many other questions, to rate the amount of pleasure they got from everyday activities. And those activities were small but enjoyable things, like chatting with a friend, watching TV, eating breakfast, laughing at a joke, or maybe something as simple as receiving a compliment. If you received a compliment, how much pleasure did you derive from this compliment? And so when the researchers analyzed the results, this is what they found. The recent accident victims reported gaining more happiness from these everyday pleasures than the lottery winners. How could it be possible that you suffer 
a catastrophic change in your life to where you can't use your arms, you can't use your legs, and yet you find, you report that you are actually happier from the smallest things in your life. How can that possibly be? Well, people have looked at this research and subsequent research, and they have basically decided that, unfortunately, as wonderful as the lottery is, that thrill that comes with winning all that money, it wears off. So the problems that existed before winning the lottery, they actually become more magnified when you have all the money because people say, if I only had this much money, then I could do this and that would fix my problems. But people who win the lotto, they find out, no, money does not fix their problems. As a matter of fact, they have to face the reality that the problem can't be fixed by money. Therefore, the dream that they had winning the lotto is no longer an option. It's gone. So now they're left with no other options. And so the most positive events for the lottery winner, they cease to have the same impact because the baseline has changed. How are you ever going to reach that level of euphoria that was achieved when you won the lottery winner? So they became accustomed to all the little pleasures that their wealth gave them. So then those were no longer new and they were no longer enough to help keep their, their happiness levels high. Another interesting, uh, it's not one specific research, but it's been throughout a series of articles and, um, and news reports that have been done over the last five to 10 years, looking at uh, athletes coming out of college, signing huge contracts, and suddenly they're wealthy. The statistics that we have tell us that 78% of NFL players go bankrupt or fall into some kind of severe financial stress within just two years of retirement. How can that possibly be? 78% of NFL players after two years after they leave the game are bankrupt and they make so much money for basketball players. It's only a little better. 60% of basketball players are bankrupt in financial ruin within five years of retirement. So by the third or fourth year of these new athletes that are playing, that are making all this money, what we see is that they are straining to try to live up to the lifestyle that they were, they were able to create with all of the bonus money that they receive. Like for example, you're coming out of college, you sign a huge $10 million, uh, a year contract, lasts for two years, four years, and then you have bonuses that are built into that contract. Well, you buy a house, you buy the car, you do all these things, you spend that $10 million, and now you, ex you have this expe um, expectancy for your life that I'm going to be able to live like this forever. But, of course, we know that it's not true. As you start playing, it becomes harder and harder for you to meet those bonuses. You have to score a number of touchdowns, score a number of points, whatever it is that's built into your contract. And the older you get, the harder that it becomes. 
we call it the sophomore jinx in sports because the first time people play you, yes, you're amazing and it's hard to beat you. But people then start to get to know you. They study your game. And so now the good coaches prepare and they know how to make your life difficult. So it becomes harder and harder for these athletes to make the money that they expected that they would be willing to make. And once you change your lifestyle, it's so hard to try to go back. Here is a very positive uh, role model. Alvin Kamara, four-time Pro Bowl running back. He says, I've always known the value of the dollar. It's a lesson that I learned from my mother. She taught me the importance of hard work. As a kid, I saw my mom work multiple jobs only to be able to afford the bare essentials. So why is Alvin Kamara so such a good role model for us? Because he has spent very little of the money that he has made from football. He, he didn't change his lifestyle. He lived in the same house. He drove the same car. He didn't go buy a big mansion, go buy all these things that he didn't need. He says, and this is this is from an interview that he did with Uninterrupted. He says, I'm like, okay, this is more than I've ever had. My mom ain't never had this much. It would be a shame if I got this and lost it. I'm going to keep doing the same thing I've been doing. I'm going to spend it on what I need, and that's it. I'm not going over the top. I'm not going to live beyond my means. He understood the value, the opportunity that he was given. And good good on him. Right? We should probably have, he should probably go and talk to all these college kids that are about to sign the huge contracts and say, that this is the reality of it. But unfortunately, you know how it is. People don't listen. Everyone thinks it doesn't apply to me. All right, so moving on. We know that that wealth and money is probably not going to give you what you thought it would. It's great to tr- to to strive to try to to have more money to try to try to make your life better. But I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that what you need to be happy is actually much less than what you think that you need. The truth is, in America, the American dream is still very much alive and well. But unfortunately, it's been twisted and it's been tainted by probably commercial industries that are that are trying to take a bigger slice of that pie. If you have a house to live in, if you have enough food to subsist on, and then you have friends and family, you enjoy their company, you feel loved, and you feel like you have the capacity to love, then you have the American dream. And we get so caught up in um, the ideals that other people are trying to sell us that we we've lost we lost sight of this. Here's an interesting. There's an article by Erin Kurt. Um, you can search her online, and she asked students around the world what they loved and most remembered about their mothers. And if I asked you that. Or let's just say, before we talk about their mothers, if I were just to ask you, who are the people that have had the biggest impact on you in your life? What did they do to to make that impact? I would be very surprised if you told me, oh, well, so-and-so gave me a lot of money. That's never the answer, is it? They didn't give you their material possessions. It wasn't like they, they left you everything in their will. That's not the way it works. It's usually something that is tied to 
an emotional impact. That's what we remember, and that's what makes the bigger impression on us. So what about these college students and their mothers? Well, this is what they said. Here are the top 10 things that students all over the world remembered and loved most about their mothers. Number 10, the mother would leave special messages in their desk or in their lunch bag. I think as a going to school, opening up your lunch, and yes, you're looking for, like when I was in, in school, it was, it was the Capri Sun. Whoever had the Capri Sun, oh boy, their mother must have loved them. And then just to see that little special message, that special note. And it reminds me of, uh, it was a movie. I don't, re- don't remember the, the name of the movie. I think it was just a made-for-television movie. But the young couple, fortunately, the husband died, and the, the, um, the widow was trying to cope with the loss of her husband. And he had this habit of leaving little notes around the house for her. And it, it was like six months after he had died, and she thought that she was coming to, to terms with it, and then she found another note that he had left for her. And I remember watching that and saying, oh, my goodness, something that is so special, and yet at this point it was causing so much pain. That was, Anyway, that's, that's getting off the topic a little bit, but that really stands out with me. How important, how impactful can those little messages be? Number nine. Discipline me, it makes me feel like you care. Well, that's backwards, isn't it? What do you mean, discipline me? If you love me, then you're going to discipline me. Okay, number eight, cuddle under a blanket and watch your favorite TV show together. Oh, that sounds very nice. Showing love, giving attention, spending time. I like it. Number seven, Uh, What students around the world most remember and loved about their mothers. Let me play outside a lot. That was my childhood. Loved it. Spent a lot of my life living around rivers, um, living around state parks. And I would just go and my, my time to be home was when the sun went down. Love that. Number six. At night, talk to me about anything. About love, about school, about family. How often are we lost on our computers, on our phones these days? Uh, I think we can certainly spend more time talking. Just having a parent for a student, having a parent there that is willing to spend time, willing to talk to them, but also has something of value to contribute. So many times, this is very classical, oh, you don't understand me, right? I don't want to talk to you. Well, that shows that there's probably a break in that relationship. No matter how difficult the teen years are, we know that teens still want an adult that they can turn to. Um, as a teacher of many years, I can tell you that, that most of my lunches were spent talking with students about different things in their life. And many of these, those students did not have parents at home who had the time or some of them didn't even want to talk to their children. So um, I felt, always felt that that was something that I was doing as a teacher that was even more important than the, the novels that we were studying. Number four, give me nutritious food so I can grow up healthy. Love that. Number three, spend quality time just with me, not with my brothers and sisters around. That's good. You have multiple children. Spend time with each child. Give me hugs and kisses and sit and talk with me privately. I, I, I see um, 
a pattern developing here. And then the number one thing, come into my bedroom at night, tuck me in and sing me a song. Also tell me stories about when you were little. So none of those had anything to do about money, did they? My mother gave me $20 a day to buy whatever I want. No, that's not, that's, that's not what makes kids happy. It's all the little things, the notes, the spending time, the talking, right? All right, so let's shift gears. So let's get back then to uh, Chesley Christ and uh, the tragedy that she committed suicide and what we know about suicide now and how therapists are trying to help people through these. Well, this is what we know about suicide. First of all, suicide for us, if we're in a normal state of mind, it's hard for us to understand why someone would be willing to take their own life. But to a suicidal person, to that person that is in pain, they have such a great need to escape their reality. They are caught in what we call a downward spiral. And what that spiral is composed of is it's composed of your thoughts that lead to your emotions, that lead to your actions, and then those actions and those emotions, they also contribute to other thoughts and other emotions and other actions. So as things shut down and as things get worse, they contribute and they just continue to make it worse for that person. That is the downward spiral. So for a person that is caught in that downward spiral, they do not see that they have any other option. Suicide makes sense to that person. And I... I want to help you to understand that therapists now recognize that this is actually something that needs to be addressed. We don't always tell clients, you can't consider suicide. That is no longer your option because by doing that, what you're doing is you're invalidating something that they feel for themselves is actually very real. So therapists today are more likely to say, okay, suicide is an option. But now let's take a look at some other options. And so by letting that sit there, we're not telling them that, yes, there's something wrong with you. We're actually validating their pain and their need for a solution, which is very powerful. So what do we know about suicide? Well, people have negative thoughts about themselves. People have negative thoughts about the world that they live in. And people have negative thoughts about their future. And when you look at these three categories, the self, the world, and the future, these are often these places where people find themselves getting pulled into that downward spiral. Suicidal people have a hard time seeing past the pain. It's why it's such a tragedy when you hear about a child committing suicide. Because for a child who doesn't have the concept of tomorrow, because tomorrow, if you think about the, you know, the, the iconic song, Annie, right? Tomorrow is just a day away, but it, that's actually a lie because for a child, tomorrow is forever away. Suicidal people can't see past the pain. For the children, they think that when characters on TV die, they're reborn again. They do not understand the permanency of that decision. And for people that are that can't see past their pain, they also stop looking to the future. That's why we will often ask them, well, and this is a very important question, 
if you were to commit suicide, what would tomorrow be like for everybody that was left behind? Who would miss you most? What do you think would happen when people found out that you were no longer there? And something about helping that person to ask that question and see beyond their death often pulls them back from the ledge. Suicidal people feel isolated. They feel lonely. And most often, they are hiding their pain from the other. How many people in Chesley's Chris life are going to say, I had no idea because she was hiding her pain from even the people she most loved because oftentimes in, in the mind of a suicidal person, they, they are protecting their loved ones by not sharing this pain. And we can't entirely blame changes like on the brain. Like you'll hear that, right? Well, if you mess up brain chemistry, if you take drugs and so forth, then, then that a person might become suicidal. But if we think that, or if we recognize and accept that changes in brain chemistry are actually very normal, it happens on a daily basis with our circadian rhythms. It happens on a monthly basis for, for women in the menstrual cycle. And, and then for men also, it's, it's a little longer than a monthly cycle, but there are also cycles within the brain of men, just as there are with women. Falling in love Think about how your brain changes when you fall in love with somebody. And that's a very positive change because we like those feelings. So we can't say that suicide is caused by a, a, some kind of chemical change in the brain because we have these changes all the time. So we ask, why do you want to commit suicide? What are you escaping? And if we can figure out what it is that is causing someone to want to commit suicide, we have found what we call a trigger. And then once we know what the triggers are, then we can start looking at coping mechanisms. What are some alternative and adaptive ways that we can help you to get those needs met that you feel that you aren't getting? It's important also that we remember that suicidal patients are not suicidal 24 hours a day or seven days a week. It, it's happened, it, it like people go through these, these ups and downs and a suicidal person is more likely to act out on their suicide when they are in the lowest of their lows. And one other thing I wanna mention, um, when we talk about like bipolar disorder, people who have very high manic stages and then very low um, depressive stages, I want you to, if when I'm teaching this to a class, I will draw the big cycle on the board, and then I will show here is the range of the normal person. Look at how high their high is and how high their low is. And on the board, it'll be like, you know, five or six inches of space. And then I will show them the the wave of a bipolar person. Here is the manic phase, and it's, you know, 10, 15 inches up. And then here is their, their lowest depressed state. And then that'll be 10 to 15 inches lower. So when you look at that span from the highest manic to the lowest low, that fall has got to be incredibly intense and incredibly painful. So we say that people are not suicidal all the time, but when they hit that lowest, especially after they've been on a manic stage, that is a time that is very dangerous. So if we can identify the triggers, 
then we, we can work on helping you to recognize when these triggers are appearing, what is causing them, and then what can we do to cope when they actually threaten to overwhelm you. So new therapy is in, in suicide is looking at a couple things. Like, first of all, we want to say, do you have the means to kill yourself? Do you have weapons, sharp objects? Sometimes people have medications, they threaten to overdose. Well, we say, okay, I want you to give me these things for now. So we try to remove these things from their environment. And then once they're removed from the environment, we can move forward. So if we can, if we can get rid of the means to kill themselves, then we actually have a little bit of a speed bump going towards that end. So we also want to take a look at, well, what are some things that we can do? A list of coping, some problem-solving strategies, and then what are the emergency numbers that you can call? And therapists who deal with this, they will give their personal number to their clients, so you call me. But there's also, uh, you can call now, not very many people know this, which I think is really um, a shame, dial 988 Right? We have 911 for emergency. Well, now we have 988, and that will directly connect you to a suicide hotline. Another thing that we can do is we can text BRAVE, B-R-A-V-E, to 741741. So texting BRAVE to 741741 will connect a person via text to a suicide prevention center, and then someone will respond. And so... First thing we do, we try to remove uh, what a person might use to kill themselves. Then we help them to develop a list of coping and problem-solving strategies, such as the emergency numbers. Then the third thing we do is we try to focus on decreasing their isolation and then increasing their relational support. So when are you alone? What can we do so that you're not alone all the time, or at least you have you have the the ability to reach out to someone? And then how can we how can we get people around you reach out to a support group and actually increase this? Um, and then the fourth thing is we want to identify and address any barriers that might be getting in the way of a person getting healthy, getting better. And sometimes that's certain toxic people in their life. It could be toxic habits. It can be um, addictions. There, there are many, many things that can be contributing to those triggers. Suicide does not have to be the only option, no matter how difficult things get. Right? Bridges can always be built, and there are options that will lead you to a happy and healthy life. Five coping strategies. We say redirect, we say we try to delay, we try to distract, and we try to help, and we try to teach clients how to self-soothe. We ask, what are your strengths? What support do you have? When you think about it, you will be surprised as to how many people are actually there willing to help you. But here's the thing. Here's what's hard. It takes humility. It's hard for us to say, I am hurting Something is wrong right now, and I need help. But what you find is the more humble you allow yourself to, to become and the more honest you allow yourself to become, you find that there is actually strength in admitting 
that sometimes you are weak and that sometimes you actually need help. Here is the message. You are not alone. Everybody at some point faces trauma so severe that it seems like there's no other option. And suicide at that point might become a valid option. But you're not alone. It happens to people every day. And there are ways to get through that. Consider your your family. Consider your friends. Consider past mentors, clergy, pastors, therapists, doctors, even the nurses in the emergency room. And then even a stranger. You'd be amazed how many strangers would be willing to help you if you, if you ask them. You have the support available to help you to deal with your crisis. There's a book I highly recommend. It's by Ellis and Newman. It was written in 1996, and it's titled Choosing to Live, How to Defeat Suicide Through Cognitive Therapy. And what they do in this book is it's a self-help guide that addresses addresses people who are considering suicide and it provides tools and it helps readers to to assess self-assess their risks and understand the factors that continue to reinforce the suicidal um, ideology the suicide talk and behaviors it offers a step-by-step program that helps us to change our negative beliefs so that we can stop going down that downward spiral so we can start unwinding that spiral and reaching high. So I highly recommend this book. Again, How to Defeat Suicide Through Cognitive Therapy. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, This was a little longer than my normal podcast. I try to keep them at around 20 minutes and we have gone twice that, but this was such an important topic. I wanted to make sure that we addressed everything. And one last time, remember 988 is the suicide hotline. 988 on the phone, just like 911. If you dial 988, you can reach someone, you can talk to someone. Or text BRAVE to 741 741. That's BRAVE 741 741. And if you ever find yourself needing help, it is there. Reach out, find someone. And I guarantee that once you get through that crisis, you will look back and you will say, I actually feel empowered because I went through that and I survived. I am Dr. J.C. Burnham with the Out of the Deep End Podcast. Have a blessed day.